Let's stand and pray now for our time here. Thank you, Brother Alberto, for leading us in prayer this morning. Muy buenos días para todos. Que el Señor les bendiga. Queremos dar gracias al Señor por la palabra que va a ser recibida en esta mañana. Podemos dar gracias. Puede cerrar sus ojos para que le demos gracias al Señor. Padre, en el nombre de Jesús en esta mañana, damos gracias a Dios por la palabra que será recibida en este momento, que prepare nuestra mente, nuestro corazón para recibir el mensaje de su palabra que es vida. Toca los corazones, Señor, para que haya un aliento y esa palabra pueda dar vida cada momento, en todo tiempo, para seguir adelante en nuestra vida. Gracias, Padre, por la oportunidad que nos den este lugar de poder hablar de su palabra, de poder hacer una oración dando gracias por su palabra en este lugar. En el nombre de Jesucristo. Amén. Amén. Thank you. Thank you, Erica, for reading scripture and uh, brother for praying for us this morning and for Chris for leading us in songs that are rich with truth. Um, and so many people work hard with what we're doing here. Again, if you're visiting with us, we want to welcome you and we want to thank you for your presence. Our greatest joy is to present Jesus Christ as the only solution, the only satisfaction that man needs. And this morning we are in the book of Job. And so this morning I want to begin by asking a set of very serious questions. How is the world to know what real Christians look like? How are they to understand what it means to be a true follower of Christ? What is it that can take place that leaves no doubt that a person is a real worshiper of the God of the universe? How can the world distinguish between what is a real worshiper, what they look like, and those who are just pretending? Those are serious questions. And the answer is you take away from them those things that they value, and you sit back and you watch. Take away a precious relationship. Take away or, or frustrate some hope. Inflict some pain on them. Strip away something of value and then step back and watch to see if they bow down and worship the living God. Not simply because he's the bestower of blessing, but because he is simply God. You see, it is suffering that is the fire that refines and reveals the heart of worship. You see, true worship will always come with a cost. Let's think through some situations that that might be true. It's costly to be open about your Christianity in the context of a public school or a secular college. It might even be costly in the context of a Christian school. It is costly to live out your faith honestly and openly in the office or at the shop. Maybe those in those contexts look at you and, and ridicule you, or there's a loss of reputation, or there's a loss of respect. You're just not taken seriously anymore. Why? Because you are a follower of Christ. There's a cost. It's costly when you say, I cannot marry you because you are not a Christian. It's costly. It's costly to give faithfully to God when you, you think to yourself, well, I could use that money that I'm giving to God for things in my life. And especially during tax season when you're sitting down with that tax preparer and he's looking at you like, you can make ends meet if you just use this. It's costly to be the person that says, no, I'm not going to do that. Why? Because I'm a worshiper of God. So this, this loss, this suffering, this trial, this commitment reveals the true heart of a genuine worshiper of God and separates them from those who are just going through the motions of being followers of Christ. 
It's a very serious question with a very serious answer. Now, I want to just briefly remind ourselves of how we're getting now to chapter 6 and 7. As you remember, the beginning of this story, we see Job, and he's a demonstrated by God and the narrator as a righteous man, a blameless man who who, who fears God and, and stays away from evil. And yet Satan comes in the realm of heaven and God presents Job as this righteous man and, and Satan challenges God, take away his stuff from him and he won't, he won't worship you anymore. But he does. Take away his physical uh, health And he won't worship you anymore. He'll curse you to your face. But Job still worships God. His wife ends up acting like a foolish woman and tells him to curse God, but he doesn't. He will not. He is still a faithful worshiper of God. And then he has three friends that come and sit with him for a week. And they're there, and they're silent with him. And then Job utters this, this lament, this curse, these questions. He is, he is just speaking out of his anguish and his suffering. And then Eliphaz speaks. He musters up the courage to speak. And he's trying to be gentle. He's trying to be helpful, but he's not comforting. Because all he's doing is presenting some form of religious moralism, some standard, some code of ethics. What you sow, you will reap. And if you choose to do good, then good things will happen to you. If you choose to do bad, then bad things will happen to you. So if you're experiencing this bad stuff, that must mean then that there's something sinful in you that caused this. And we know, and Job knows, that that is not the case. And yet this is the thinking, this is the ideology that he brings. So he intends to be helpful, but he's not. And at the end of the book, we hear God saying to Eliphaz these words, My anger burns against you and against your two friends, for you have not spoken of me what is right, as my servant Job has. You see, each of Job's friends will fail in their counsel and will have an opportunity to to hear what that counsel is. But Job, even though his life is in turmoil, even though he is alone, even though he is a shell of what a man should look like, even though he has been spouting off curses and laments, he is still a worshiper of God. Now, friends, that, that might shock you if this is, you know, first time here in Job. That we could say that about a man who is saying the kind of things that he's saying, but that is what this book is about. A true worshiper going through suffering that cannot be explained. So here he is in the ash heap. He has no status, he has no job, he has no family, he has no hope. He sits outside the city, despised and rejected. But he is the real deal. He is a true worshiper of God. And friends, it is a reminder for us. It is an opportunity for us to consider another man who was outside the city, despised and rejected, bowing as it were to the will of the Father. Suffering his own ash heap of the cross. So Eliphaz has sought to bring comfort And now it's Job's turn to speak in response. And this is where we find ourselves. And I think as you think about Job's responses to all of his friends, you could rightly say it's all one big lament. (laughs) It's a wrestling match from which Job will rise up limping, but grasping what is most important, that God is sovereign and wonderful even in suffering. Now, friends, Job's friends come confidently to comfort Job, but they are so wrong. Job cries out. He laments. He's so confused. He's pathetic at times. He's so full of doubt, and yet he's so right with God. We see this wrestling match even in our text today. And so it would be good for us to pay attention to all that Job says says in this book in order to assess what marks out a true follower 
and a worshiper of God. So as we turn to chapter 6 and 7, I want you to notice the rightness of Job's anger in the face of multiple arrows of suffering. Now, not the righteousness of his anger, but the rightness of it. You heard that correctly, that the, the rightness of his anger. Anger isn't always a sin. It is an inner energy that can be used for both good and evil. Paul even says, be angry and do not sin, Ephesians 4, 26. And there are some things for which we should be angry. We should be angry about abuse, physical, sexual Emotional, political. We should be angry at injustice, if it's truly injustice. We should be angry that innocent children are being murdered in the womb under the banner of my right to choose. I should anger you. We should be angry at our own selfishness, our greed, our foolishness, our pride. These are things for which we should get angry. And so there is a place for what we call righteous anger, but even then we must not allow ourselves to sin in that anger. And this text is structured into three sections. They are your main headings. If you want to take this down now, you can. The arrows of the Almighty, verses 1 through 13. The arrows of Job's friends. And then the arrows... Of death. This is Job now responding to what Eliphaz has just said. And it's important that we connect Job's response with the speech of Eliphaz. Look, if you would, at chapter 5 and verse 2. Here's what Eliphaz says He says, Surely vexation kills the fool, and jealousy slays the simple. Now notice how Job responds, verse 2. Oh, that my vexation were weight, and all my calamity laid in the balances, for then it would be heavier than the sand of the sea. Therefore my words have been rash. Well, what is he saying? He's saying, Eliphaz, what you said about vexation isn't true. The problem is you do not have any room for the vexation that I'm feeling, for the angry and the anger and the anguish and the, the, the trouble that I'm going through. And so he's saying ultimately three things in these 13 verses. First of all, don't you see the heaviness of my suffering? You're so caught up in your neat theological system that you don't have any room for righteous anger, or my righteous anger in particular. Don't you understand how heavy the suffering has been? Heavier than the sand of the sea. Yet my words have been rash. I understand that. They haven't been presumptuous. They've been wild. They're the outflow of a, of a heart that is struggling with the suffering that he's experienced. If you'd only listen, you'd understand that I am not a fool to be so angry, I'm simply expressing the depths of my pain. Don't you see the heaviness of my suffering? Secondly, don't you see the bitterness of my suffering? Let me tell you the reason why I'm hurting so much, and it may surprise you. It's not because of my standing in society has come to an end. It's not that I'm bereaving my children, and I am but it's because the Almighty God, the one who is sovereign over all creation and therefore controls everything, has been firing poison arrows at me. Look at verse 4. For the arrows of the Almighty are in me. My spirit drinks their poison. The terrors of God are arrayed against me. Now, these arrows penetrated deeply. It's as if the whole of creation is against him. Now, remember what happened to him. Remember what happened to his family. Right? I mean, there was lightning that destroyed 
a bunch of, of, of his possessions. The winds came and tore down a building where his children were gathering for a birthday celebration, and they were all crushed. He, he's not saying, I see God up there doing this, but he's saying, these are the arrows of the Almighty because he's the creator. He's the one who oversees this whole place. And then there's the, 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 the armies that raided in. Two separate armies that came in and took his stuff away and killed his servants. These are all part of the, the arrows that he's experienced. This is what he's feeling. This is what he's thinking. This is what he's experiencing. He sees himself as experiencing the wrath of God, and it's hot. It's settled. And that makes life so unbearable. It makes it bitter. He cannot comprehend why this is happening. And then he gives two illustrations of what it's like for him. Let's look at verse 5. Does the wild donkey bray? When the, he has grass or the, the ox low over his fodder? Can that which is tasteless be eaten without salt? Or is there any taste in the juice of the mallow? My appetite refuses to touch them. There is food that is loathsome to me. What is going on here? He's saying he's like a donkey or he's like an ox that is not fed. When an animal's not fed, it just... Makes lots of noises. You ever have you have a cat in your house? Our cat's like meh, meh, meh. And it's like there's tons of food there. Just let me, you know, I so I pretend to scoop out. You, you've done this too, right? And you go over and you pretend to do it, and he's like, oh, okay, you know, and then he starts eating. But they just make all this noise. That's the picture here. He's saying, but what I have been eating is tasteless, it's disgusting. It's the kind of food that one spits out of one's mouth. He's saying, I can't eat it. So what is it that he refuses to eat that causes him to bray like a donkey? Now, it may be a reference to the things that he has experienced, the suffering that he's experienced, the loss of family, the loss of possessions, the, the, the physical suffering he's experiencing. But it seems better to understand because this is a response to Eliphaz's words, that the, the words of his friend are what he finds tasteless. That he's spewing out of his mouth. It's bland. It's disgusting. It's something that you refuse to eat. Anyone here like durian? Anyone had durian before? Don't. Don't. It is illegal to take durian on the airplane. Did you know that? It is so, such a strong stench. But there are people who love it. They're not of this world. They're not human beings because it is the most disgusting thing in the world. And you taste it and go, that's what he's saying. What you have given me to chew on, it is disgusting. And so he has every right to be angry. There's a similar passage found in Psalm 69, verses 20 and 21. Here's what it says. Reproaches have broken my heart so that I am in despair. I looked for pity, but there was none. And for comforters, but I found none. They gave me poison for food, and for my thirst gave me sour wine to drink. So going back now to Job's experience and what he's saying, the point of his illustrations is to say that if his friends had come to him and fed him an edible diet of comfort and pity, he would not be screaming in anguish. He sees even his friends as part of the arrows of the Almighty. Friends, the section is screaming at us about our presumptions when we're seeking to help people in their distress. Too often we're, we're too quick to diagnose their problem with the first few words they utter, and so we, we, we just don't allow them to answer. We don't listen to what they're saying. We shut off our minds, and our hearts are no longer comprehending the things that are coming out of their mouth. All we want to do now is to give our counsel. 
All we want to do is to say, oh, this is what your problem is. This is the solution. And we stop listening to them. We're not machines. God has created us to be true, truly human beings who struggle and suffer and question and feel the deepest of pain. Pressing buttons for quick fixes or neat and tidy theological solutions will not do if we truly care for one another. On the contrary, if we truly want to bring comfort, we must be quick to listen and slow to speak. And when we do speak, it should come from having listened carefully and processed through the grid of a well-grounded theology. So he says, don't you see the heaviness of my suffering? Don't you see the bitterness of my suffering? Third, don't you see the hopelessness of my suffering? Verse 8, oh, that I might have my request. And what is that request? It's the request that he would die. <laughs> He's saying, God, just, just come and let me die. Fulfill my hope that it would please God to crush me, that he would let loose his hand and cut me off. Why? Why is he even saying something like this? This seems so wrong. Look at verse 10 and following. This would be my comfort. I would even exult in pain unsparing, for I have not denied the words of the Holy One. Get this. He is fearful. What is he fearful of? He's fearful that he will deny the words of the Holy One. He's fearful that he cannot endure this suffering much longer and that he might slip into cursing God. So rather than suffer more and not have the strength to continue and not to hold on, he'd say, God, just, just allow me to die because I do not want to curse you to your face. See, he knows that he only has so much energy, that his strength is coming to an end. And friends, isn't this what we hear from people who are going through all sorts of suffering and trials? I just don't think I can physically or mentally or emotionally do this anymore. I just want to give up. It's hopeless. He says, is my strength the strength of stones or is my flesh bronze? What kind of person do you think I am? I'm not Iron Man. I'm not some kind of superhuman that can endure much more. I have no resources, no, resources, no strength. It's all been zapped by the arrows of the Almighty. Friends, this is a mark of a true worshiper. Arrows of the Almighty are an unbearable pain, but a true worshiper does not want to deny the words of the Holy One. And we wrestle with this, don't we? God, this, this suffering is just too much. Just take me away. And yet in our heart we know that's not the solution and that would not honor him that he has another path for us to walk. So the arrows of the Almighty. Now we move to the arrows of Job's friends. In this section, Job points out that the religion of moral order and obedience promoted by Eliphaz brings no comfort. It emphasizes the ineffectiveness of his counsel of his friends. So first of all, I want you to notice that Job has an expectation of his Friends, they came showing sympathy. They came because they wanted to comfort Job. But he gives his assessment now of their efforts. Verse 14. He who withholds kindness from a friend forsakes the fear of the Almighty. He's not just standing up and saying, now here's a thought. Here's, just a, 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 you know, here's a, a principle that you should live by. No, he's responding to what's just been said. There's a context here. He claims that they have withheld kindness from him. And as a result, they are forsaking the fear of the Almighty. The word kindness here is the Hebrew word chesed. 
which is the word used to translate God's loving kindness, his steadfast love. And that's the the love that is a, a covenant love that is committed to those that God is covenanted with. So God is ever loyal to keep his covenant with those he loves. And of course, that theme of Hesed goes all the way through the Bible. Ultimately, it is central to his act of sending Christ to die on the cross for our sins. That is the ultimate act of his steadfast love. Now, in this case, it refers to the kind of covenant loyalty between friends. And what Job is saying is that his friendship with these men carries a strong obligation, a loyalty, especially when one is suffering. So to not show loyalty is a mark of disrespect. Job is accusing his friends of failing to show loyal sympathy and love. Now, friends, what what does the word friendship mean to you? Are you loyal in your friendships? Can you be counted on to listen before you come to a conclusion when you're sitting down talking with a friend? Are you a friend no matter if they fall flat on their face? What does loyalty look like in friendships? We're going to start a list here because this whole section is about friendship. It means taking responsibility of that friendship. Which means you might be the person that needs to take the initiative to to keep cultivating that friendship. To keep reaching out to that person. But if you are a friend, it comes with the responsibility to be a friend. These things work together. Even when it's hard. It means also listening when your friend is going through some trial and trouble. They want to turn to someone that they can trust. Hopefully they can trust their friends. Hopefully their friend is going to be able to give some counsel. And so being a friend means the ability to listen. Also, it means empathizing. Putting your feet in other people's shoes, in your friend's shoes. Seeking to understand their hurt, their pain, or suffering. It may not seem like a big deal to you, but it is a big deal to them. And so you, you, you kind of meet them where they're at. They're your friends. You're going to do that. That's what we've learned so far. We're going to look at a few more as we move on. But Job has an expectation of his friends. Secondly, Job has an illustration for his friends. He describes them as a dried-up wadi. Now, what is a wadi? It's not some kind of a food item you're going to find at a taco truck or something like that. Okay, It's, it's a location in the hills where the snows have come, there's been ice, and it melts, and it forms a pool. So it's kind of like an oasis in the desert, but more in the, the, the hills, in the mountain area. And a wadi is a place that, that travelers like to go to, especially when they're on a journey. And so we have this image here of caravans of, of merchants or migrants who would know the different places where they could pull off the main road to get refreshment on a hot summer journey. And so what Job is picturing here is a wadi that is, is remembered as a place of refreshment. And so the caravans, are they're making their journey, and it's hot and their mouths are parched, and they turn off the road, and they're like, hey, I know where there is a wadi. I know where we can find refreshment. And they turn the corner to get to that place, and it's dry. There's no water there at all. The hope that they had is now lost. So, what is Job getting at? He's saying his friends, they came, and their presence offers and anticipates hope for him. Who does not want to have your friends around you when you're going through trial and suffering? Of course you do. And when your friends are there, you're finding, you're anticipating comfort and hope in them. And what he's saying is, you're like a dried out wadi. A lot of promises. But no fulfillment of hope. It's empty hope. Because their words miss the mark. Eliphaz's words are missing the mark. And so a true friend also means that you bring hope to your friend. 
You're the kind of person that wants to encourage them. They may be going through all sorts of difficulty, and part of your role as a friend is to say, listen, this isn't the end. You're going to get through this. I'm here. I'm with you. It's the kind of hope that friends bring. Not only does he have an illustration, but he also has a request. Look at verse 22. Have I said, make me a gift, or from your wealth offer a a bribe for me, or deliver me from the adversary's hand, or redeem me from the hand of the ruthless, or teach me? He's saying, teach me and I will be silent. Make me understand how I have gone astray. So he's, he's saying to his friends, look, I'm not asking for some, some special favors like, like you know, giving me a gift or offering a bribe or delivering me from my adversary's hand or, or redeem me from the hand of the ruthless. I'm not asking for that right now. All I want you to do are two things. Teach me and help me to understand what's going on. Or to put it this way, he's saying, I don't need your accusations. What I need is illumination. And friends, that is helpful for us, isn't it? We can often come into a situation ready to unload the barrels of words, advice, and counsel. And and sometimes all we're doing is repeating what happened so that the person got into the situation where they were at and you you need to stop doing the things that you did to get you there. But what that person needs is not to be pressed down, but to be given light, to be given understanding, to be given hope. Now, friends, this can be true in relationships and our friendships, but this can also be true in parenting. I think too often as parents, we're not listening to our children when they've done something really stupid or sinful. We just remind them of how foolish they have been. Our anger drives us to be overbearing or to beat them down with our words when what they ultimately need is understanding and illumination. Now certainly, and hear me, I'm not saying that their sin should not be dealt with or should not be pointed out or should not be clarified. I'm saying that is important, but oftentimes that's all we do. And what we also need to do then is give them illumination that flows out of a tenderness, a loving understanding to help them comprehend what it is they've done and how then to make progress forward in their life. And too often, unfortunately, we're driven by our our systems of theology, our selfishness, our frustration, and we fail to give hope and illumination to those that we're trying to comfort and help. And so, number five, as far as our view of what does it mean to be a loyal friend, means we're we're the kind of people that will bring illumination. Not just condemnation, but illumination. I think when people have gone through some stupid things, they typically know that what they did was pretty stupid, right? You don't come along and say, well, that was really stupid. I know it was really stupid. Let me tell you how stupid it was. Let me tell you about it, all right? Can I tell you how stupid it was again, but in a different way? I know it was stupid. I know it was sinful. I know it was wrong. I know it was bad judgment. Help me out here. Give me illumination. And where does that illumination come from? Not the ideology of the world, but the word of God that lives and breathes God's truth to us in our situations. Give them a biblical perspective of what they need to do from that point on. Not only that, Job has a charge for his friends. He now describes the emptiness and the hurt that he feels because of the failed loyalty of his friends. Verse 25, how forceful and upright, uh, how forceful are upright words. But what does reproof from you reprove? Do you think that you can reprove words when the speech of a despairing man is wind? Now look, we can be, we used this at home group the other night, I hope you understand the analogy. We can, we can play whack-a-mole with people's words. You know what whack-a-mole is? If you don't know what whack-a-mole is, I thought about this after home group and thought, you know, there's some people that probably had no idea what whack-a-mole is. 
So whack-a-mole is one of those old games. You can still play it usually at, at you know, the, the coastal piers or something like that. And you basically go and you put your quarter in, or as it would be a dollar today, I think, right? And basically you have like a little hammer thing. And what happens is you have these moles that pop out. And so you, as soon as it pops out, you're supposed to whack it, right? And, and, and there's a sense in which when we're interacting with people who are suffering, and what Job is accusing his friends of is they are playing whack-a-mole with his words. You said anger, whop. You, know, you said, you said oh, you know, I have every right to, to, to be vexed here, whop. And so they're just constantly just attacking his words rather than actually seeking to understand what is going on in his heart. And we can be so consumed with the words that what he's saying is your upright words, your words of justified and religious moral system, they're coming to bear now. It's like you don't even, you're not even listening so he's saying, stop hurting me with your words. You hear me cry out in anguish, cursing, lamenting, and asking questions, and you, you know what I've been through, and I'm presently enduring. Don't you know that those wounds were anguish and sorrow spoken to no one in particular, but to anyone who is listening? But you treat them as wind, as if they are of little importance, not to be taken seriously. Don't you have a clue? And you sit here and reprove me for my words with upright words, words that theorize your little moralistic religious system. You see, he's getting, he's angry. <laughs> he's angry with his friends. Not only that, he says, stop treating me like a pawn in the game of your religious discussions, verse 27, you would even cast lots over the fatherless and bargain over your friend. He's saying, listen, you're, you're treating me as if I'm a case study for your research or I'm some project that you're working on. I am your friend. Please take the pain and suffering that I'm experiencing seriously. And then... He says, instead, I charge you to please listen to my words and change your minds. You just catch these expressions here. Verse 28, please turn. Let no injustice be done. Consider that my words are honest and true. He's saying, I am not lying to your face. There is no injustice in my tongue. He's insisting that he can distinguish or discern the validity of his position from the inval invalidity of their words. What you're saying is not true. What I'm saying is true. I'm not lying to you. I'm not playing some game here. I'm, I'm speaking the truth. Will you please listen to me? And we can say one final thing here about this list of friends, that we do take each other seriously. We take things at face value. If your friend says, you know, I was I was treated badly, or these things happened to me. You don't just say, ah, oh, don't worry about it, brush it off. You take them seriously. You're the kind of person who wants your friend to know that you value them and that you're going to listen to them. So just think of that list there. Just kind of paw or ponder over it, these marks of a loyal friend, responsible, listening, empathizing, giving hope, giving illumination, taking suffering seriously. We weep with those who weep. Can that be said of you in your friendships? Isn't that what you desire in a friend? The arrows of Job's friends. Third, the arrows of death. The arrows of death. See, Job is he's wrestling with the arrows of the Almighty, sorting through all these things that are happening to him from different angles, and he's angry at these, these arrows. He's angry at his friends for missing the mark, and for treating him with such disrespect and disloyalty. But now he shifts, and he, he's focusing now on reflecting on his life, and then moving from that reflection on life to turn to longing for death. So let's consider here his reflection on life. These would be the, the first 10 verses or so, um, and then the longing for death would be that to the end. 
So as he reflects on life, I want you to notice that he piles up the imagery here to paint a picture of his life under the sun. But there isn't much sun for Job, is there? It's one long rainy day right now. As one commentator said, this is, this is the book of Ecclesiastes. Emptiness, emptiness, emptiness. Now, Job may not be speaking directly to God in these first six verses, but he is speaking in the direction of God. These words are for God's ear. He is saying that life is long, it's hard, it's painful, it's random, and it's an empty vapor. It's full of suffering, not joy. It's full of futility, not fulfillment. These words are not so much anger as they are a lament on life. So first of all, life is hard. Verse 1, has not man a hard service on earth? Are not his days like the days of a hired hand? This idea of service on earth has the idea of military service, the kind of military service as a result of being conscripted into the military. And then we have this picture of a hired hand who, who is poor but working because they has to work and he's not expecting much. There's no, no real joy in what he's doing. He's simply working to survive. Life is hard. And some of you are there. You're working jobs that you really don't like. You're just having to make ends meet because that's what you have to do in order to exist and survive. Life is hard. Secondly, life is empty. Verse 2, like a slave who longs for the shadow and like a hired hand who, who looks for his wages. So the slave is, is looking for the, the end of the day to, to get out of the sun and find some rest. The, the hired hand is looking for his wages. Verse 3, so I am Allotted months of emptiness and nights of misery are apportioned to me. There is no end in sight, no relief, no shadow, no end, no wages. It's just a life of misery. It's an empty life. Life is also long. Verse 4, when I lie down, I say, when shall I arise? But the night is long. And I am full of tossing till the dawn. Now, some of you probably did that last night. Tossing, tossing, tossing. You know what it's like. When you can't sleep at night, that night is a long night, isn't it? And that's, that's what he's talking about. He's, he's expressing what, what his life is like here. Living out the day is hard and empty, but facing the night is also a long prospect because I'm just tossing and turning till the morning. I don't look forward to the day. And there is no comfort in the night. Each day is long. It's hard. This is life. Life is also painful, he says. My flesh is clothed with worms and dirt. My skin hardens and breaks out afresh. What a wonderful picture. Here he is sitting in his ash heap, full of sores, oozing pus. And, and the dirt now has come on his body, even, it says, worms from that dirt are there, and his skin hardens, and there's this hope of healing. But what happens? Then those wounds break out afresh. This is painful. So he's talking about his experience, but he's still talking about life. The promise of healing, the promise of restoration is gone. Fifth, life is random. My days are swifter, verse 6, than the weaver's shuttle and come to their end without hope. Job now speaks of my days, whereas earlier in verse 1 he was speaking of his days. So he's moving from the general to the specific, the general humankind, but now he's drawing attention to the things that he's experienced specifically. The image of this weaver's shuttle provides a two-fold picture. You know what a weaver's shuttle is? Have you ever seen that before? It thrown there through, through the, the actual weave that's taking place, and it's, it's the piece of wood that has the, the thread on it. It's thrown back and forth. And you see these people do it, and man, they, they're timing, and they are quick, and it's just back and forth, and back and forth, and back and forth. And so there's a couple of images that come out of here. Uh, life is, is moving fast. I mean, it's just happening so quickly, 
and it's random. It's back and forth. It's back and forth. And that's why they say life is random. It's a fast-paced, random life that will end without hope. That's what he's saying. Verse uh, uh, number six, I should say, and we're in verse seven. Life is a breath. He says, remember that my life is a breath. My eye will never again see good. This has happened so fast. Uh, I don't have much time left. Verse eight and following, you know, he, he's talking about, you know, people who have seen me how I used to be, looked at me, and they thought that, that I was a successful man whose substance uh, would endure, whose legacy would endure, but they are wrong. I am like a cloud that appears for a moment. And you get this, this blowing wind that just takes the cloud away. This is what my life is like. It's just a breath. It's here, and it's gone. And so the only thing left for him to do is to descend into the place of the dead, Sheol, to leave his house, to leave his family, to leave his place, places where he once belonged, are now a thing of the past. Life is breath. And Job is saying to God, I know that your eyes are on me, but it seems like I really don't matter to you. And friends, that's often what we are thinking or crying out when we're going through suffering. All these things are happening to me, God. Don't you see me? Do I not matter to you? Now, everything we've read about Job in chapters 1 and 2 tell us that God thinks highly of Job. Job matters to God. So much so that God chooses Job as the example of what it means to be holy and righteous. He's a man who's concerned for spiritual things. So why is life so hard? Why is it so empty? Why is it so agonizing? Why is it so random? God, do you really care? It's good to remind ourselves of that stanza from William Cooper's hymn that we looked at a few weeks ago. That hymn, God Moves in a Mysterious Way. And it's a stanza that goes like this. Judge not the Lord by feeble sense, but trust him for your grace. Behind a frowning providence, he hides a smiling face. Life is hard. Life is often painful. Life can be empty and full of events and activities that appear to be random. But get this, God is at work creating a tapestry out of your life according to his will. All Job is seeing is the weaver's shuttle going back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. Because that's what he's experiencing. But he's not seeing what God is creating in the tapestry with that weaver's shuttle going back and forth. He is, he, is, he is creating a life that honors him, that glorifies him, even through the suffering that Job is going through. And friends, sometimes we have to, we have to see things that way. We don't see everything. Someone's used the, the illustration of someone doing needlepoint. You guys ever done needlepoint before? It's an old thing. Some of you may know what it is. Maybe go home or go to grandma's house. You might find some needlepoint, right? And on top, it looks so wonderful and so neat, but you look underneath it, and it looks like chaos. And oftentimes, that's, that's how we view things. We don't, we don't see what's beautiful on top. We see the chaos underneath. But it is God that is weaving his tapestry out of all the things that are going on in your life, good and bad, to bring about the beautiful picture that's on top. So he says, I'm reflecting on life, and life is hard, empty, long, painful, random, and it is a breath. But he also says, I'm longing for death. And so he says, why shouldn't I speak my mind if these things are true? Verse 11, therefore I will not restrain my mouth. I will speak in the anguish of my spirit. I will complain in the bitterness of my soul. I mean, what have I got to lose? I'm dying. I'm going to be snuffed out. So hear what I have to say. It's interesting what he says, isn't it? Verse 12. 
Am I the sea or a sea monster that you set guard over me? Wasn't expecting that to come out of his mouth. What is he doing here? Yam, the sea, uh, the sea as God, and the, the associated sea monster were the worst enemies of God in the old stories of the Canaanite background. He's saying, am I a threat to God that I would receive such hostility from him? In other words, am I that ultimate arch enemy of God that he would throw down his whole gauntlet of suffering on me? When I say my bed will comfort me, my couch will ease my complaint, then you scare me with dreams and terrify me with visions so that I would choose strangling and death rather than my bones. Job's saying, I can't find comfort in the day because you are setting a guard over me. I can't find comfort at night because when I go to bed at night, you torment me with those dreams. I'd rather have death and it to be over with. See, Job, although he wasn't around, is viewing God as George Orwell's big brother in his book, 1984. His cameras are everywhere. His secret police are close behind. He is tormenting Job. That's, that's what he's experiencing. That's what he's feeling. And so Job says, I have no strength for anything anymore. He loathes. My understanding is the word his life is not in the Hebrew. It's there to help us understand. But it's just saying, he's just saying, I loathe. I loathe. I loathe. I would not live forever. Leave me alone, for my days are breath. You ever said that to God? God, leave me alone. Leave me alone. We're probably shocked at a statement like that. But in the context of what Job is going through, it makes sense, doesn't it? He's saying, God, please stop harassing me with more suffering. Please, God, understand that my days are coming to an end. In other words, Job is saying, please, God, enough is enough. I'm tired. Take me home. So he's saying, am I a threat to God? Then he continues on. and He says, am I God's punching bag? Look as we continue on. Verse 17, what is man that you make so much of him that you set your heart on him, visit him every morning, and test him every moment? This is, this is very similar to Psalm 8. What is man that you are mindful of him? Most of the time, the psalmists in their laments are crying out to God, do you see me? Do you see what's going on? Pay attention to me. Here I want your eyes on me. But Job is saying, no, I don't want your gaze on me anymore. <laughs> Enough of this. Verse 19, how long will you not look away from me? Not how long will you look away from me, but how long will you not look away from me, nor leave me alone till I swallow my spit? Just think through that. Job is asking, how long until you look away from me? Why have I been the focus of your attention? Can't you take your gaze somewhere else, please? He's saying, I don't want you to be the supervisor of my life. You think God seeing everything should bring him comfort, but for Job, the fact that God's eyes are on him is a nuisance. It is an interference Here's the truth of it. If I go to sleep, you torment me. If I stay awake, your eyes are always on me. I can't even swallow my spit without you knowing about it. There's the quote of the day. Okay, I just want you to know that. I mean, this is how down to specifics and the heart of Job is, is coming out here. I can't even do the smallest little thing, and you're not aware of it. And friends, this is God's omniscience. And God's omniscience can be a comfort, <laughs> but it can also be a torment. And Job is experiencing the torment here. 
Again, the questions pour out, don't they, in verse 20 and following. What have I done to you? Why have you made me your mark, your target? Why have I become a burden to you? Why do you not pardon my transgression and take away my iniquity? Now, Job knows that he's a sinner. There's no question about that. In verse 20, I, if I sin, he's saying, I, I know I sin. But he also knows that the remedy for sin is forgiveness. And so he's saying, God, why don't you forgive me? But he cannot understand why he has not been forgiven since he has shown his penitence and offered up his sacrifice. So think through the logic of what's going on. His friends are saying, the reason you're in this suffering is because you've done something in the past, which is a sin that has not been forgiven. And he's saying, but no, I know I'm a sinner, but there's no, there's no sin that rises up that I have not repented of. So why am I not being forgiven? Why am I experiencing this suffering? And he's unaware of any further sin requiring repentance. And friends, we the readers know that Job is correct. We the readers know that he is a, a man of integrity. He is blameless. And there's a sense in which we empathize with his suffering, right? You're saying to us, I'm glad we have a book written about another guy who's going through this because I don't want to be that guy. I don't want to be the guy who's innocent yet suffering. Anyone want to do that? Raise your hand. Happy to help you out. No, I don't, we don't want to be that guy. And so we, we, we empathize with what he's going through, but he's a man of integrity. For now, he says, I shall lie in the earth you will seek me, but I shall not be. Job is saying, my life is on its way out. You will search for me, but I will be gone. God, if you come to make amends, it will be too late. Lord, just give me meaning. Give me understanding to help me un you know, comprehend why this suffering is at work in my life. This is, this is his heart that is angry at his circumstances, angry at what he is going through. Now, I began this time today saying in this text that we see the rightness of Job's anger in the face of multiple arrows of suffering. And we looked at the arrows of the Almighty, we looked at the arrows of his friends, and we looked at the arrow of death, and that death there is what's looming, what, is, what he's waiting for. And Job is angry at all these arrows, and he speaks wildly to God about his suffering. His words are, are born out of what he's experiencing, but tempered by what he knows about God. He still remains anchored to him. He still wants to be faithful to him. He still worships in spite of his confusion. And so this morning, as we bring things to a close, I, wanna, I just want to bring... Two warnings and one word of counsel as it relates to righteous anger. First of all, anger is difficult to control. Is it not? Ephesians 4.26, Paul says, be angry and do not sin. Look at James chapter 3.17. James says, But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. In other words, it's not anger. It's not a sinful anger. And modern psychology encourages us to express our anger as a means of therapy. You see in marriage counseling where, you know, each of them have these kind of I don't know what, they start beating each other with these, these noodles, right? To get your anger out, vent it, get it out there, right? In, in today's world, we don't need that anymore. We just have Facebook. That's where our anger is vented. There's more people on Facebook and social media that are just venting anger, 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 anger. But Scripture warns us not to do that. Listen to Proverbs 29.11. A fool gives full vent to his spirit, but a wise man quietly holds it back. A fool gives full vent. Proverbs 15, 18, a hot-tempered man stirs up strife, but he who is slow to anger quiets contention. Proverbs 14, 29, whoever is slow to anger has great understanding, but he who has a hasty temper exalts folly. 
Proverbs 22, 24, and 25 says, Make no friendship with a man given to anger, nor go with a wrathful man, lest you learn his ways and entangle yourself in a snare. So anger is difficult to control, first of all. Secondly, anger is to be a channel for good. See, anger can be used positively or it can be used negatively. It can be used for good, and it can be used for evil. Anger is the emotional energy we have as a result of something not being right, an offense, an injustice, an abuse of some kind. And our natural tendency is to allow our anger to be ruled by our flesh rather than by putting on the Spirit of God. So if you see or read about or hear about an injustice that stirs your emotions toward anger, you must learn to fight against your flesh and submit that anger to God and use that energy to fuel good rather than to let it run wild in sinful outpourings. We must learn to take every thought captive to obey Christ. We do that through the word of God in prayer. It's not read your Bible and pray every day. This is saying, God, you have spoken. You have revealed yourself. Checking your heart, checking your motives, checking your, your thinking to see if it is in accordance with the word of God. And communing with him to seek wisdom and insight for strength to exercise self-control and allowing God to fuel us with his spirit for good. And then finally, there is a difference between being angry at God versus expressing your anger to God. And I think what we have here is Job expressing his anger to God, not being angry at God. One is rebellion against God. The other is bowing down in worship to God. Even when your anger is expressed as a braying donkey, God is still willing to hear. Even better than that, he's eager to hear. Friends, if Job seems defiant, it is the defiance of faith. All Job has known about God, he still believes but God's inexplicable ways have his mind perplexed to the breaking point. Job is in the right, but he does not know that God is watching with silent compassion and admiration until the test is fully done and it is time to state his approval publicly, which he does at the end of the book. Friends, when we are angry, it's okay to take your anger to God. And I've been pastor here long enough and I've heard your stories and I know your struggles and there's a lot of anger out there and there's a lot of justified, righteous anger. God will hear the cries of his faithful children who are coming, expressing their anger to God as a means of worship and help. That's what Job is doing. So you don't have to just bottle it all up. You can bray like a donkey. That's what it sounds like. But to God, it's one of his children worshiping him through their suffering. Lord, help us today comprehend our suffering Lord, is simply an outflow of your purposes in our lives. Somehow we have bought this lie that our lives on this earth are just going to be a wonderful tiptoe through the tulips. Everything is going to be peachy. Life is just going to be fun and glorious. But Lord, we know that's not true. Because we live in a sin-cursed earth. And we live among people 
whose lips do not glorify you, but desire to dishonor you, to ridicule you, and to mock you. Lord, one day we will be with you in your heavenly kingdom. That is what we long for. Not all the, the blessings and the joys of this earth, although, Lord, we're thankful when you shine on us and you're gracious to us. We praise you for that. But we know the resolve, the rest, will truly take place later. So give us wisdom now. Lord, help us to come to you when we struggle. We thank you, Lord, that it was anger, anger at sin, that was the means by which you sent your son, Jesus Christ, to this earth. Yes, out of love, but that love meant wrath, and that wrath was poured out on your son. That wrath was poured out because it was justified, because of the sinfulness of man, and yet your son has borne that wrath on his shoulders for those who would believe. Let us be mindful, Lord, that that wrath is anger at man's rebellion against you. And that your going to a cross was an act of love in the face of that rebellion that brings reconciliation and love, new life, and hope in Jesus Christ and then all that comes with that as followers of him. So Lord, even now as we pause to celebrate the Lord's table, there's a little bit of a new meaning that this sacrifice, yes, it was done for us, but it was the result of your wrath. Being satisfied with the sacrifice. Help us, Lord, to be motivated to worship you more, even in our suffering. You are a wonderful, gracious, loving God. We praise you in your name. Amen.